Welcome to the Virtual Word Rounds, a surgery podcast that helps you answer those burning questions you never had a chance to ask by the bedside. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Virtual Word Rounds podcast. I'm Rosie and today we are going to be talking about small bowel obstruction. To guide us through this tricky presentation that often has a surgical outcome. We have our resident surgeon, Sergey. How are you, Sergey? I'm very excited, Rosie. Small bowel obstruction is one of my favorite topics, and it is still, unfortunately, a very common presentation in our emergency departments. What do you like more, Serge? Small bowel obstruction or hernias? Oh, that's tough. That's tough. You see, <laughs> one causes the other, and together they're like... <laughs> They're like the the ultimate cake and the cherry on top. I think I think I love them both equally. <laughs> Why have one when you could have both, hey? And joining us today, we have Sukriti, who is from second year and hasn't done an episode with us before. So welcome, Sukriti, to Virtual Award Rounds. Thank you so much for having me, guys. It's so lovely to be here. It's such an honor. Thank you. Is small bowel obstruction also your favourite topic in oh, <laughs> I don't love it as much as <laughs> But you know what, after today's podcast probably will be my favourite topic, I reckon. Okay, so guys, seeing as um, we all love small bowel obstruction so much, let's start by defining what it is we are actually talking about. So when we say small bowel obstruction, Suki, what is it? What are we dealing with here? What a great question. Um, I didn't know before I sort of sort of had research for this podcast, but I think the main crux of it is that an obstruction basically refers to a sort of a mechanical blockage of the bowel um, where there's a sort of a structural pathology that physically blocks the sort of passage of intestinal um, contents. And um, it's really surprising, about 15% of acute abdominal cases have a bowel obstruction. So it's really prevalent in um, our society today. Um, oh, wow, it's very common. Yeah. We're talking about small bowel obstruction today, but bowel obstruction can also happen in the large bowel. Is that correct? Uh, yes, I believe so. Yeah. Small and large. Yeah, they're two different ones. What are the common signs of sim- and symptoms when somebody does have a small bowel obstruction? From my understanding, the symptoms to consider um, sort of include, um, I would say for small bowel, abdo pain. Um, it can be localized or it can be generalized. Serge, would you would you want to butt in and, and, and sort of let us? Usually, with small bowel obstruction, you get that uh, visceral pain, uh, which is which is non-specific uh, and can sometimes be upper uh, or central around the uh, umbilicus, or can't put a finger on it. That's sort of the typical visceral pattern. You have pain, but you don't exactly know where it is. Once you get inflammation. You know, if, if the bowel is um, ischemic, then you get periton- peritonism and that becomes localized. But usually with a small bowel obstruction, if the bowel is otherwise fine, you get the non-specific visceral pain, but you also get a very typical pattern with it, don't you, uh, Suki? You definitely do, you definitely do. Um, I'm pretty sure you get a lot of colicky sort of pain and cramping as well, yeah. And, and bowel colic is very different from, for example, biliary colic. Uh, the bowel colic is very frequent, uh, short-lasting episodes of uh, crampy uh, abdominal pain. And it is, as you said as well, is um, small bowel obstruction is almost always associated with quite profound vomiting. Yeah, so nausea, vomiting, uh, bloating, and then also an inability to sort of maybe pass stools or 
um, and, and, you know, get those gurgly sounds going on in your tummy, which is, which is really important, as we know. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess if you're not passing wind or stool and you're vomiting a lot, you may have some systemic signs as well like dehydration and um and maybe some problems because you've got electrolyte imbalance yeah absolutely vomit so small bowel content is rich in potassium so you lose potassium when you vomit also you get a significant third spacing uh during small bowel obstruction so you become intravascularly depleted and because you are unable to take anything uh, orally, um, you are not replenishing those reserves. Mm. So you can get quite remarkably uh, spectacular electrolyte abnormalities and you can get dehydration, you can get renal failure. Um, and if you have uh, inflammation um, accompanying the small bowel obstruction, uh, either because of bowel ischemia or because you've vomited and aspirated and developing, say, chest infection, uh, then it becomes an even um, bigger problem. I've never heard of um, electrolyte imbalance being referred to as spectacular before. So I really like that. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So pain, nausea, vomiting, electrolyte disturbance, probably a lot of dehydration. It sounds like these people are pretty unwell. I'm wondering, Suki, if you can tell us a little bit about the things that cause small bowel obstruction. Yeah. Um, so I think the number one um, would be previous abdominal or pelvic surgery. You get these intra-abdominal adhesions, um, things like abdo wall or groin hernias as well, um, intestinal inflammation, and um, as we talked about before, intersusception. Um, things like diverticulitis, Crohn's disease as well can all cause um, small bowel obstruction. We have adhesions, herniation, intersusception you mentioned. Is, there, yeah. is that more common in children or does it happen in adults as well? It is unfortunately really common in children, the poor little things. Like I think they get this telescoping of the bowel where a part of it goes in and you get this sort of um, interception that occurs and then they, they can't obviously pass um, past feces and stuff through. Yeah, and in kids, it's a little bit different to adults, uh, but you're absolutely correct, Suki. Uh, in kids, it's almost always physiological, which is essentially normal. It's it's abnormal when it happens, but there's there's no tumor or or any pathology to fix. It's because of their their connections, their connective tissue is uh, quite stretchy, and so it allows telescoping of typically of terminal allium into the cecum, uh, and that's where the obstruction happens. Uh, and usually to fix it, uh, the kids you will need to get uh, an air enema. Um, I've never seen it. I've only heard about it. Uh, in adults, intersusception is a lot less common, uh, but it's almost always is associated with a lead point. Uh, and that lead point can be either a benign tumor, for example, lipoma, which is just a little overgrowth of fat, or maybe a little um, blood clot, for example, from a trauma, or it can actually be a malignant tumor. Now, small bowel tumors are fairly mm. uncommon, uh, but if you have an adult that presents with intersusception, the treatment for that is different because we are looking for a tumor 
I see. Right. So it's not that same um, physiological kind of sliding in and out. Exactly, exactly. It's not you. You assume that this is this may not necessarily be a benign thing, and even if it is benign, then it may still happen again. So the the treatment for that is going to be to resect that that segment, send it to pathologists, see if there is a cancer. But the two most common causes for small bowel obstructions are adhesions and hernias. And this is this is going to be an interesting question to both of you, uh, Rosie and Suki. Um, if you have a patient with a virgin abdomen, which means that they've never had an operation, what in, in that population, what is going to be the most common cause for small bowel obstruction? Go for it, Rosie. Take it away. <laughs> <laughs> so if it's not adhesions, then what if is it? If it's not an adhesion and it's not, uh, is it a hernia? It is a hernia. That's right. So in nice. population, in the population of patients that never had surgery before, is going to be a hernia. Uh, but in population of patients that have had surgery in the past, adhesions are going to be the most common cause. The number one. Mm. Okay, so this is sounding like um, when we're doing our history on somebody who comes in, we really want to deep dive into the pain, understand the pain, work out where it is. Uh, the character of it? Is it colicky? Is it constant? There's some real things in the pain that can help us determine if this is bowel obstruction. We want to know, of course, about nausea, vomiting, distension. Um, but it sounds like we also want to dig into their medical history and really get out of them if they've had surgeries in the past. Because if they have, then that's going to be a really big indicator that we're probably dealing with a bowel obstruction. That's correct. And adhesional bowel obstruction is also treated slightly differently to other causes of bowel obstruction. So, for example, um, for adhesional bowel obstruction, which is essentially scar tissue uh, mm. that, that happens inside your peritoneal cavity, and that scar tissue constricts over time, like all scar tissue does, and sometimes it, it narrows the lumen of the bowel to a degree where things stop. Uh, but scars also can have some give. They, they, they have a bit of stretch, so they can open up again. And maj a majority, about two-thirds of adhesional small bowel obstructions will settle with conservative therapy. But if you've got, for example, a bezoar obstructing your gut, who knows what a bezoar is? Is it a clump of hair? It is. Uh, it's so solid structure that usually forms from ingestion of indigestible fiber, uh, and uh, the classical. Uh, so it's it's essentially a, a, a hairball. You know, the cats spit it out fur every ball. now and again. The fur balls. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But what happens in humans is you don't have the same capacity to regurgitate it, uh, and uh, it happens classically in young females that tend to nibble on their long hair. Serge, when I was a kid, I used to chew my hair. Am I? Do I potentially have a bezoar <laughs> hiding somewhere in me? Might, might well, might well be. And sometimes those things can grow to absolutely enormous <gasps> size, and they will not block your block it because they cannot move out of the stomach. They can just sit in the stomach, and just wait for their time to cause you some problem. I should have listened to my mum more. Oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> I've never been personally afraid on this podcast, but now I am. 
Uh, I'm glad. I'm glad. I, I tend to, I, I do like to make this podcast as personalizable as possible. <laughs> We're really tailoring <laughs> so it to you, Rosie. Everybody can participate. Um, <laughs> but smaller bizarres, they can move down. And uh, they, as, they, as they pass through the, uh, through the small bell in a couple of areas, they can get stuck. Uh, and that's, and uh, usually that means that they will not move again. And usually for that, again, surgery is going to be uh, the way, the, the treatment of choice. Okay, so important questions on the history are deep dive into the pain. Have you had any previous surgery? Did you chew your hair as a child? And <laughs> um, have you had a hernia or, or any other risk factor for small bowel obstruction? So say we have now, you know, done a good history. We think this is looking like a small bowel obstruction. Is there anything in the examination of the patient that we really want to look out for? Um, I would say focal tenderness might be one. Um, guarding as well as rebound tenderness, where you sort of palpate the patient, you let it go, and then see if it's more painful either when you're palpating or when it is let go. Um, I've also heard listening for a tympanic sound, like a tinkle. So if, if you want to let me know what, what that sort of actually means. So, so with small with small bell obstruction, you you're listening to tinkling sound. The tympanic sound is is drum like, so it's more of a feature of a large bell obstruction. But tinkling sound is uh, is classical with small bell obstruction. Is it also common? So you might have the tinkling bell sounds. Is it also common to have no bell sounds? So no bell sounds means that it's it's an alias of some sort, uh, and it can happen uh, due to an insult um, to the bell, and it can happen either because of um, the the bell is getting compromised, so that's a bit mm -hmm. of a red flag, uh, or because this is not a small bell obstruction, it may well be something like a post-operative alias or alios due to significant electrolyte abnormality where your nervous system of the bowel just gives up the ghost and stops. All right, so we've done uh, a good history. We've done our examination. Of course, the next thing that we're going to do is investigations. But something that Serge has been honing in on in the last couple of episodes is that before you send your patient off to have all these tests done, you might want to stop and look at them and think, is there anything I can do for them right now to make them feel a bit better to relieve some of their symptoms? So in this case, is it appropriate to administer some analgesia and maybe give some fluids and, and help manage those electrolyte imbalances? Absolutely, Rosie. And I'm very glad that you brought it up because it is omitted so often. Uh, all the textbooks go from history, examination to investigations and then surgical management. And then forget that that takes time and you're dealing with a sick patient. So please, please uh, give them some analgesia, give them some fluids. If the patient is presenting with small bowel obstruction, uh, you can at least give them some antiemetics at the same time to reduce some of that um, uh, terrible feeling associated with the bowel blockage. And if these patients are highly likely to be having surgery, does that mean that many of them will be put on a nail by mouth? If it's it's very difficult to eat if you're vomiting, so they kind of put themselves <laughs> onto a nail by mouth diet. But you have to remember that the reason why we fast patients before surgery is so that they have an empty stomach. Yeah. Now, a patient with small bowel obstruction is not going to have an empty stomach. It's going to be full of fluid, is it? 
So their their surgical management uh, and their anesthetic management is going to be a little bit different because they are at higher risk of vomiting and aspirating if they end up needing an operation. Can I just ask a few clarifying questions on that? Because I think even though this, this might be a sideline, but I think it's a really important point. So even though the patient is vomiting, not really eating or drinking themselves, all of the gastric juices and the bile and all of the things that our own organs put into the DIT are not able to pass through. So that means that actually they're going to have a lot of contents in there, which need to be dealt with before they go to surgery. That, that's correct. But you can deal with that contact in a number in a number of ways. You can put a nasogastric tube and you can decompress the uh, the, the stomach, uh, mm-hmm. and that is usually quite effective. Uh, but also, if the patient is ending up needing to go to the operating theater, uh, then the anesthetist will do a, a slightly different induction sequence. They, they, I, think, I believe they call it a rapid sequence induction whereby they protect the airway a little bit more carefully and precisely to to prevent that exact occurrence of uh, either vomiting or regurgitating and aspirating into the lungs because you know if if you got a sick stomach then having a a chest infection on top of that is going to be pretty catastrophic isn't it <laughs> absolutely okay so we have our patient they've got analgesia they they're on fluid so they're starting Um, the symptoms that we can manage are being managed. So what sort of investigations do we want to do? So as Serge said before, um, the electrolyte balance is totally sort of out of whack when you have a small bowel obstruction. So doing some EUCs, uh, obviously doing a full blood count, which we normally do, um, looking at the calcium, magnesium, phosphate levels, some LFTs to have a look at the liver, doing an amylase lipase, um, as well as a urine analysis and beta HCG would be your lab sort of test to start with. You might even consider doing an ABG and having a look at the lactate, especially if they're elderly um, or if they're really, really tender at that site in the tummy. Mm. I mean, you need to remember that all of those tests and investigations and assessments that we're doing for small bowel obstruction is designed to, to do one thing. We're looking for red flags. Okay, red flags to me signify bowel compromise uh, or an irreversible blockage, okay? And if I find one or the other, um, I will be much more inclined to take this patient to the operating theater sooner. Okay, so say we don't have too many red flags in the lab tests and we think we have a little bit of time to investigate further. Is imaging the next place that we would go? Absolutely. I love a bit of imaging. Um, (laughs) So a CT scan with sort of IV contrast of the abdo and pelvis is your modality of choice um, in a suspected bowel obstruction. And we do it, you know, so often for these sort of things in the hospital. Um, You use oral contrast and you use IV if you've got the time. Um, And they can sort of differentiate between your mechanical obstruction, your pseudo obstruction, um, and they can sort of see where the site is for the surgeon. So the surgeon knows where to go when when they're operating and planning the operation. Um, You can also do some abdominal radiographs um, for small bowel obstruction. They're not as sensitive as a CT scan. Um, But things like, you know, have we learned in in med school in year one, a dilated bowel, which is greater than three centimetres, Um, having a central abdominal location where you can see the dilated bowel, 
and also having these things called bavulae conventis, which are sort of lines that completely cross the bow. They look like stack coins. Um, they show up quite nicely on an on a, um, abdominal X-ray as well. And you can do that erect or supine. Erect is probably better, but yeah. That's excellent, uh, Suki. That's that's fantastic. Thanks thanks for that. I absolutely agree with you. What about ultrasound? Uh, do we uh, is there any utility uh, for ultrasound and small bowel obstruction? Yeah, ultrasound. Yep. Again, it, it can it can sort of help in in some circumstances. Ultrasound's not great with air. So anything that's got air in it, like your bowel, which is full of, you know, gas and air, you need to make sure that you fast for some ultrasound scans. So it might not be the most um, used in adults, but of course in children because it's um, it, it doesn't use radiation. We're more, more likely to use um, ultrasound for those things. But but in an adult, you'd, you'd probably likely go towards a CT scan and a um, abdominal X-ray AXR. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely agree. The uh, the only uh, one other indication for trial of an ultrasound, if is if the in, a, in the adult, if that's a, a female and they are pregnant, and yes. when CT is contraindicated and say MRI is unavailable, uh, yeah. so ultrasound may be uh, may be tried, but it is technically challenging, um, especially in our uh, overweight uh, population. Hey, Serge, I heard something about a gastrographin study. I don't really know what that is, but I think it's related. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, certainly. Uh, so gastrographin uh, is a contrast media that we uh, use for small bowel series. And the patient either drinks it or we put it down in there as a gastric tube uh, and it lights up the bowel on the inside and we can take some x-rays to see how far it gets at different stages. Uh, it's been used for, for quite some time, but in the recent uh, 15, 20 years, we've discovered that for adhesional small bowel obstruction, this is not only diagnostic, but can also be therapeutic. Uh, mm. And the way, yeah, and, it's, and it's, so, so we, we do tend to use it uh, because it can actually help help resolve uh, the, the, the obstruction. And the way it works is thought to be due to its osmotic gradient. It's, it's quite hyper-osmotic, so it sucks the fluid out of the bowel wall. And mm. uh, once you suck the fluid out of the bowel wall, the bowel wall becomes narrower, and so the lumen expands. Also, it produces a bit of extra osmotic gradient, allowing things to push them through. So it's an interesting one because it's technically an investigation, but it is also a therapeutic modality. That's a treatment. Why uh, that's why it's so cool. The gastrographin challenge, we call it these days. <laughs> that's amazing. I've never heard of that before or seen it done in the very tiny amount of clinical experience I have. Is it common or is it something that's still very much in like researchy, you know, cutting edge phase? Uh, no, 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 Rosie. It's it's quite mainstream. Uh, the research is quite definitive. Uh, the patient selection is key, and you need to individualize that, of course, because sometimes uh, it can force your hand into operating. Uh, if if obviously it does not work, or if it causes um, to, some red flags to develop because of increased osmotic pressure, it can also mm. you know precipitate a perforation, for example. Um, so you need to you need to use it judiciously. But I'd say that uh, in adhesional small bowel obstruction, I probably use it for maybe thirty to fifty percent of my patients. Oh wow, that's quite a lot. Yeah, yeah, it's and 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 it is used like that uh, pretty much across the board. I think at least within Australia. Okay, guys. So we've gone through the common causes, 
presentation, signs, symptoms, history, examination of uh, small bowel obstruction. And we've also talked through the common investigations and really explored the different imaging modalities that you can use. It sounds like there's quite a few. I think we're gonna wrap it up here and we'll do a second episode on all the different treatment options for small bowel obstruction. Sounds great. Suki, thank you so much for joining us today and for bringing your new expertise on small bowel obstruction. And as always, Serge, thank you for all of the clinical expertise that you bring. This has been a really interesting episode. Thanks, Rosie. Thanks, Serge. Absolute pleasure. Virtual Board Rounds is available wherever you get your podcasts. For updates, follow us on Instagram and Twitter or to send your thoughts, queries, concerns, comments. You can also email us at virtualworldrounds at gmail.com. Until next time, happy studies.